0: If you have your Bibles, please open them to Joel chapter 2. If you do not have your Bibles, it will be behind me on the screen. And we're going to start with verse 12. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disasters. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants, let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep. And say, spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage or reproach a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? May God bless the reading of his word. Last week, um, we talked about the day of the Lord. And during that time, we recognized that the day of the Lord is not going to be a good day, ironically, for the people of God. Um, for those in Israel and Judah, and especially Judah, since that's where Joel is prophesying, uh, he recognizes that all of the problems that they've been encountering were all curse laws. There, there were reasons for this because of their disobedience, and then he realizes that the end of the at the end, the day of the Lord will only mean one thing, and that's exile—the ultimate punishment for people, um, for the people, which is banishment from their land—and so. With that in mind, with that day of darkness in mind, we come to this portion in Joel, which is so important for us. It's important not only for the Jewish people at that time, but also for us too. And let's see why. Verse 12, Yet even now, Declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. And rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. Despite the disaster which the people will encounter when they experience the day of the Lord, the Lord himself says, yet even now. Yes, even though it seems as though all hope is gone, God calls them to return to him. In other words, God is calling them to repentance with all of their hearts. True repentance will make itself known through outward characteristics such as fasting, weeping, and mourning. Yet there is a warning here. It is not enough for them to just rend their garments To rend their garments represents one who is in great sorrow or agony over an atrocity. And we remember Caiaphas in the New Testament when Jesus replied, I am, he ripped his garments because he believed he was hearing blasphemy. And blasphemy was such a serious sin, it immediately caused him in the sorrow. But God does not want them to just simply rent their clothes, to, to break their clothes, to rip their clothes But he instead wants them to rip open their hearts. It can be easy to fake sorrow. It can be easy to fake repentance. But it is not so easy to do when our hearts are what are broken before God. But why should they? What should cause them to turn to repent? The simple truth is God himself. Because he is gracious, he is merciful, he is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Because he does relent over disasters. If repentance is seen, true repentance, then God will often turn aside his wrath for a time. Just as with the case with Jonah and the Ninevites. Thus the reason for returning, for repenting, was because God is worthy. Now verse 14, who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Now this verse is interesting. It recognizes something which we all too often forget, and that is that while repentance is something which God calls all people to do, it is not something which controls God. Repentance recognizes that God can turn away his anger. And in repentance, we hope that he will do so. But God is not controlled by it. We cannot command God to turn his wrath or his anger away through repentance. We cannot say, I've repented, therefore you should turn away your anger. Instead, we humbly must approach God, recognizing that it is his mercy... Which turns his anger away from us. And that is the hope. Who knows that after this day he will not leave a blessing. That he will in fact be merciful to the people. Despite their disobedience against him. Even to go so far as to leave a blessing. Indeed this is the final point of the verse. That currently the offerings are cut off. Because of the situation at hand. But there will come a time. If the people turn in faith and repentance, when the offerings can continue again, a recognition of restoration of the people, despite this tumultuous situation that they face. Now verse 15. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants, let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. At this point, the call to repentance is made clear by the prophet. He calls for a trumpet to be blown in Zion, and in basic verbatim, with what he said previously, calls them to fast and to call a solemn assembly. They are to turn and seek the Lord in repentance of heart. But that heart repentance will naturally have an outward showing, and as such the people are called upon to heed the prophet's words. Indeed, the people are all carved together. This is a general call to all the people to gather as part of this consecrated congregation. Consecrated for the purpose of repentance. But who are to gather at this assembly? All the people. And this is shown in three ways. The first is through the calling of the elders. These are individuals who were either the rulers or those of elderly age, those who had wisdom and knowledge. They are the first called to the assembly for repentance and worship of God. Yet they are not the only ones who are called, but even the children and nursing infants. This contrasts the elders who were called just now. There is no age group who are not to be in attendance, whether old or young. Finally, the bridegroom and bride, who have not yet consummated their marriage even, are called to join the assembly. Now this is really interesting because in Deuteronomy 24.5 newlyweds are pardoned from going into the army and or being liable for any public duty. Being free at home for one year with their spouse to as the text says, be happy. <laughs> Yet even they, those who would um, normally be excused from such an assembly, they are called to this assembly of the people. Thus, No one is excused. Even those who would again be under normal circumstances to find an excuse, they have none. No one is too old not to join, none too young, or none even too in love. Now verse 17. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord. And make not your heritage or approach a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? Now it is the time for the priests. They are called to go between the vestibule and the altar. This was a place in the temple complex where the priests were to go as intercessors before God on behalf of the people. Upon coming to their designated area, they are called to weep before the Lord. And cry out to him. Indeed, even what they are to cry out is provided for them. They are to ask God to spare his people. The fact that it is his people is a reminder that the people belong to him. And in remembering this the priest hope to avert his anger on the people. Likewise they are to plead with the Lord on behalf of himself. They bring forward the reality that it would be his heritage which would be brought to reproach, and made a byword among the nations. What this means is that God himself would be seen as weak if the people were to meet utter destruction. For his sake, then, they call on God to spare the people. Ultimately, this represents the reality of a complete banishment of the people. They are afraid of the greatest possible judgment of God, which would be captivity, their land being taken away. Thus, the prophet recognizes that the current judgment will occur, and because of this calls upon the priests to pray for restoration rather than complete annihilation. The people are to face the judgment that they have brought upon themselves, but in all of it, let not the nations as a whole say, where is their God? Instead, let the judgment pass and let the people be restored." The main point of these verses then are to call the people back from the abyss. They have turned away from God and now the prophet, indeed God himself, is calling the people back to himself. Joel even urges for the word to be heard and encourages a great call for all the people to assemble in repentance, in worship, and in intercession. Not because God must turn his wrath, but because they know God is merciful and may show a blessing once the judgment has passed. Alrighty, we have some application points for this. Something that came to mind in this text is the concept of intercession. Intercession occurs when one goes on behalf of someone else. Um, So when we think of the great intercessor, we think of Jesus who intercedes on our behalf to take away the wrath of God. But what do we notice when it comes to intercession here in today's text? Well, there are three things in particular that stand out. um, In no particular order, even though I order it. The first is the priests. As we recall, they were called to stand between the vestibule and the altar. And this was their place, so to speak. This is where they were to go to intercede on behalf of the people. The priests had a significant role in Israel for many reasons, but one of them, though, was that they were the nation's intercessors. The high priest, in particular, would intercede on behalf of the people yearly during Yom Kippur, when the temple would be cleansed because of the sin of the people. In the New Testament, Peter borrows from Exodus 16.6, calling us a kingdom of priests. And in Peter, 1 Peter 2, 1-12, through 12, And as the priests, we are to intercede on behalf of each other, and even the world around us. The way the priests interceded was by going to God on behalf of the people. So it is the same with us, with you and with I. We intercede for each other by praying for each other, going to the throne room of God on behalf of one another in prayer. Likewise, we do this on behalf of the world around us when we request that God bring salvation to those who are not saved or salvation from a circumstance. In this way, we intercede on behalf of sinners before God. So this is the first element of intercession. But what are the other two? Well, the second comes from Joel himself. As we see, he intercedes not necessarily by going to God on behalf of the people, but by interceding in the lives of the people, by informing them of the devastation which is occurring. It would be similar to if you were seeing someone walking straight ahead, unaware that if they continued in their present course, they would walk off the edge of a cliff to their demise. If you were to go to them and personally attempt to stop them, then you would be interceding in their life, informing them that if they continued on their present course, it would only lead to bad things. In this way, we are like prophets when we proclaim the gospel. We try to intercede for others by helping them understand who God is and what he has accomplished through his son, Jesus Christ. We intercede for each other in this way when we teach one another about God and what His will is. And as we watch over one another in love. When we do this for each other, we are interceding by reminding each other of who God is and what He desires of us. Thus, our prophetic message is by nature intercessory because we are trying to help those inside and outside of the faith understand the necessity of change, the enormity of who God is. Ultimately, it takes a great amount of love to intercede in both of these ways. For both take time, both take courage, and both ultimately seek the will of God as we fulfill our prophetic and priestly roles. It should be of no surprise then That the final aspect of intercession comes from God himself. We notice it is not the people, not even the prophet, who initiates the warnings. Instead it begins with, declares the Lord. He is the one who initiates and thereby um, initiates the intercession. He is the one who intercedes on behalf of the people, calling them to change the course that they are on. In both of the ways we find our own calls to intercede, whether directly to God or directly to others in their lives, so God does both as well. He intercedes on our behalf through His Son, Jesus Christ. And He goes on our behalf to Himself to redeem us for His good pleasure, for His great glory. Yet He also intercedes in our lives by calling us personally to change. He grants us His Spirit who stops us from a life of misdirection, a life of sin, and shows us a way of righteousness through Christ. Is it so surprising then that we are called to be like God in intercession? I do not think it by any means a coincidence. Indeed, we are called to be like God as Moses and as later Peter said, be holy as God is holy. One such way we display this holiness is through our intercessions. This world is in need of intercession. The world is in need of those who are faithfully interceding for it. Whether we intercede by pleading with God to show mercy on this world, or whether we are being prophetic, interceding directly with it to change. Know that though intercession, through intercession we fulfill a role God has called us to. And indeed, we know it is true because we ourselves are in desperate need of intercession. And by God's grace, he gives us his son and each other who intercede on our behalf in love. So go out, intercede in love, knowing that God is with us as we intercede for each other and for the world. Now, the second component of these verses that should immediately come to mind for everyone is this call for repentance. One could even argue that the call to repentance is one of the major works of intercession when we come before one another in love. Still, the concept of repentance may need to be clarified. So how do we know that repentance is a major theme within these verses? The answer lies in the very first verse when God says, Return to me. Oftentimes, we can come to a few different ideas when we hear the term repentance. But repentance, in its simplest form, simply means to turn. It means to turn away from one course and go in another course. This, then, is how we know repentance is a major theme, because when God says, return, he is telling them to turn from the path that they are on and go a different path. So let me try explaining it another way. Um, And I kind of stole this in a way, but I changed it, so you'll, you'll understand. Imagine you and a family member are invited to a family event in Ohio. Your family member says, they know the way, and offers to drive. So you accept. But after a few hours, you begin to notice that things don't seem quite right. And your fears are confirmed when the sign up ahead says, now entering New Jersey. Well now, what would you want your family member to do? You'd want them to, first of all, stop. (laughs) You do not want to go into New Jersey. Even if you haven't been to the beach in a while, that isn't the place where you want to go. That's not the destination you're seeking. But you would also want your family member to turn around. You would want them to go in the right direction. This is repentance. Stopping from going in one direction and turning toward another. Now, this concept of repentance is not only found in the Old Testament. John the Baptist, the prophet crying in the wilderness, said, bear good fruit in keeping with repentance in Matthew 3.8. Jesus himself also proclaimed repentance from the beginning of his ministry onward, as we learn in Matthew 4.17, which says, from that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Likewise, in the New Testament, we read in Second uh, 2 Timothy 2.22-26, 2, and it says this, So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a, poor, a pure heart. Have nothing to do with the foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servants must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will." So this implies that repentance is not merely a once-and-done thing. Um, it's not simply that one repents at one time, um, but instead repentance goes hand-in-hand hand with another term, sanctification. And you would think it odd, wouldn't you, if let's say your family member were to stop, go toward Ohio, and then turn toward New York. It wouldn't make any sense, would it? Um, that you want them to keep on going all the way. Now, sanctification, to be sanctified, is the work of God in us, causing us to be more and more like Christ in this life. When we seek repentance, we are not only looking to ask for forgiveness. Instead, we are seeking to continue to stop living in sin, in a lifestyle that's misdirected. We're seeking a new way of life. In order for this to take root, however, it requires something more. It can be quite easy for anyone to act the part, so to speak. There are many who at one time seem to be living in repentance, but then fall away and back into the sinful lifestyles. As Jesus once said, it is like one who is exercised of a demon. And as that demon rose about the wilderness, it misses its home, so to speak. And so it returns to the person and brings seven even worse demons with it. Such a person is not living a life of repentance, though it may appear that way for a time. Indeed, such a person would reflect those who tear their clothes rather than their hearts. We have far too many individuals who are like this. God does not only want behavior modification. He does not simply want us to change our lifestyles for a season. No, he wants us to rent our hearts before him. He wants us to have new hearts which seek him not for a season but for all of our lives. When our hearts are broken before our God, we can be sure that it leads to repentance. We see that here in Joel, but it also seen in 2 Corinthians when Paul writes, As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffer no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret whereas worldly grief produces death. Thus, when we see our brokenness before our God, and when we see our sin, when we realize we're heading for New Jersey rather than Ohio, it should cause us a sorrow for going in the wrong direction. And that sorrow should lead us in the right direction. How many of you have ever been in that state where, maybe not going to New Jersey from Ohio, but where you know that you did something wrong and you needed to remedy it? That is repentance playing out when you recognize a wrong and turn from it. Now again, unfortunately though, we also recognize that this means many people who proclaim Christ to be their Lord and Savior are living in ways which show that this is not the case. Our lifestyles are the evidence of a repentance which stems from the heart. If our hearts are wicked or are unrepentant, then we can be sure that our lifestyles will reflect this. And unfortunately, when we have so many individuals who claim to know God and yet live in blatant sin, we can be sure that they have never had a true encounter with God. And while they may claim Christ, such a claim means nothing if there's no repentance. Repentance is necessary. It is not optional. It is not as though you will claim Christ as Lord, but then live however you want to. That's not the way that this works. In Christ, we are led into a repentant lifestyle which will please our God. Thus, when we read today about renting our hearts rather than our clothes, it reflects the reality that God is not merely seeking us to have a moment of repentance which has a short-lived, again, behavioral adjustment, but a true repentance which changes our affections completely. So in this we are too called to repent. Repent from your sin. Turn away from living a sinful lifestyle, whether it be sexual immorality, drunkenness, envy, idolatry, pride, gossip, stealing, whatever it may be. Whatever sin there is in your life, seek repentance from it. Turn from it and turn toward God who is calling us even to this day. And that is where our hope lies. For though we may sense that the sin is too great to let go of, remember that God said to the people, even now. We still have life. And as long as there is life in us, there is a possibility of change. God calls us to it. He beckons us into a life well-lived for His glory. Indeed, that God would intercede on our behalf for nothing less than His own glory should fill us with great awe and wonder over this God who saves us and transforms us. It is salvation in Christ alone which we are saved, but that salvation brings with it repentance. When God intercedes on our behalf, we change for His glory. Repentance is the means of that change. So seek repentance. Seek the glory of God in your life, which he allows us to partake by his infinite grace. Yet, there is one final point to consider before we close this out. That is, many people believe that if they do repent, then they deserve something for it. We all know individuals, and indeed may have been individuals, who think or have thought, If I change, I want blessings to come. Well, this passage actually warns us against such thinking. We notice this when Joel says, who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him. From this we learn that God does not owe us anything if we do repent. Unfortunately, many individuals who follow the prosperity gospel... Which basically teaches us that God will bless you if you are good or if you pray this or do that. Such a notion is not even remotely close to the truth. Instead, we need to recognize repentance itself is the blessing, it is the gift. That we can turn from our sinful lifestyles and turn toward God in a repentant lifestyle, glorifying Him in righteousness, and peace, and love, and mercy, and grace. That the Holy Spirit is in us, urging us to a repentant lifestyle. This is the blessing. If this were all we had, this transforming power within us, we would know and understand that it would be all the blessing that we need. So do not be fooled. Instead, recognize that God does not owe you or I really anything. That he beckons us is enough blessing in its own right. If he so chooses to bless us further, praise God. But let us not forget the great blessing which is given to us through Jesus Christ and his gospel, that we are transformed from sinners into saints by the blood of Jesus Christ. We are works in progress, but the end result is not a work of art, but that we are called children of God. Dwell on these things. And live in repentance by the grace of God daily. And now finally we do come to the gospel. And we, we kind of wonder, okay, how does this passage in Joel deal with the gospel? Um, something that we tend to forget is that all of the scriptures talk about the gospel in some way. We may not realize that. We may wonder, okay, where is love when Joel's talking about the day of judgment? But it's there. It's there because the gospel takes everything from the beginning to the end. And so it does begin. The gospel, the worldview of Christianity, begins with our origins. And our origin starts with God himself. He created the universe by the power of his word. But he didn't create us the same way. He formed us. He created us in his image. And because God is a God of love, mercy grace. He has personhood. He has a personality of his own. We do too. We're not like other things. You're different than I am. I am different from you. And yet we both share the image of God. And it's because we share in the image of God. It's because that we each have this. All persons have this. That sanctity, dignity, worth the human life exists. Why? We fight, as they used to say in World War II. The problem is, is that we also have another attribute of God, which is the ability of free will. And our freedom of the will has caused us to turn away from the God who loves us. Turn away from the God who um, gave us life. And we said, God, I don't want life, I want death. And God, I'm going to slam the door right in your face. And because of that, we have broken relationships. We have a broken relationship with God. We have a broken relationship with ourselves, psychologically, spiritually. We have broken relationships with each other, where we fail each other. And we have broken relationships with the world, which we destroy. So, what are we to do? Ultimately, this only leads further to death. And that's the problem that humanity faces, is that with each sin, if God is a righteous judge, he must condemn us. He must do something with our sin. Now, God could have just simply let the day of the Lord come. He could have let the darkness reign. He could have said enough is enough. Humanity is judged for eternity to go to hell. He could have done that. But instead, he actually did something that Joel had hoped for. And that is that he left a blessing behind. And the great blessing that he has given us is Jesus Christ, his son. You see, in our darkness, he spoke into it. And he spoke, let there be light. As it says in John 1. And because of that, our eyes can be opened, our ears can hear, and our hearts that we need to rent before God can be transformed because of what Jesus has done. Jesus takes the wrath of God and he places it on himself for those who have faith in him and who repent of their sins. God fixes the problem that we caused So that means all the weight is off of your shoulders. (laughs) That means all you have to do is be obedient. That means that you don't bear the guilt anymore. That means that you don't have to feel ashamed anymore over your failures. That means that God has looked upon you and said, Look at my beloved child with whom I am well pleased. Because of what Jesus has done. And again, all he calls us to is the same thing he called them to. Those in Joel. Faith in him is number one. The recognition that we cannot do anything to save us from ourselves. Only God can do it. And that he did it through his son Jesus Christ. And also repentance from sin. That we are to turn away from our sin and turn toward God in grace and peace and love. But where does that lead? I mean this has to have some kind of effect for the future doesn't it it does you see the whole plan that god had for us would that we would be eternal that we would not die we would not taste death but sin causes death now you take away sin what do you have life and life abundant so for those who remain in their sin there is only death for those who remain in their abstinence, in their, their hatred toward God, there is only death. But for those who turn in repentance and who do turn in faith, death is taken away because sin is taken away and there is now life for you forever. Indeed, that's what Christ promised, that he brought life abundant. In all of this, then, we become children of God. We become co-heirs of an eternal kingdom. And if you were to stop and think about that for even just a moment, just reflect on the fact of what Jesus Christ has done for you personally. And that the future is looking very bright indeed for us. That we are going to live forever with our God. It should give us a great amount of hope, And a great amount of strength to face whatever it is we are facing. So, as we consider Joel the prophet, and as we consider what he talks about, about repentance and intercession, let us remember the great intercessor who is Jesus Christ, who intercedes on our behalf, and let us be like him, interceding for each other and for the world. But also let us remember, too, to repent of our sins, to turn toward God. And to know the great mercy and love that he bestows upon us through his son. And in this way, we know where we're going. And it's through him we'll get there to our destination. Let us pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your amazing grace which shows us that we can change. That we do not have to be stuck in our sin forever But that through your son, we too receive the blessing that change is possible. And so, Lord, we ask you, show us repentance. We ask you to rent our hearts before you. That we would allow you to come in and transform us for your sake. Lord, let us not be a foolhardy people who seek something less than you. But instead, give us grace, give us peace, and give us yourself, and let that be all that we need. Because it is all we need. We thank you. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Please rise as we sing our final hymn, Amazing Grace.